Welcome to this special edition of Closer With Simone Marie. In this episode, I talk with front of house sound engineer supreme, Scotty Baldwin. He's worked with many bands and artists, including Lady Gaga, Duran Duran, Stevie Wonder, Madonna, Brian Ferry, so many more. And of course, one of my favorites, Prince. And needless to say, if Prince calls you, you've got something substantial to offer. We discuss the process of how he builds sound for live bands, his approach with each act that he works with, what it was like working with Prince, and so much more. Scotty is incredibly erudite, intelligent, and his attention to detail when it comes to his work is just incredible. I really enjoyed talking with him and I'm sure you will too. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be a part two to this one. So please enjoy. Thanks again for tuning in. And if you're interested in any of the future episodes, then please subscribe and share the link and stay in touch. Scotty Borden, it's such a pleasure to meet you and chat to you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. I. What were you going to say then? I was going to ask you how you, <clears throat> because I'm curious, how you came to know my work and know me as uh, separately not that it's about me of course i just wonder that i'm a behind the scenes person so people generally don't know who i am unless they unless they really dig deep yeah well i guess kind of coming from my music background i'm a live musician and session musician and dj Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of my friends are producers and i'm always interested in how the sound guy works stuff out and um i got I mean, obviously, I'm a Prince fan. I've come to you via Prince, as I'm sure a lot of people do. But, um, you know, it's just struck me that he only ever works with people who were really not only the best at their game, but also on the edge in pushing themselves. And um, I kind of I guess I started listening to lots of podcasts. You know, I'm not I'm a Prince fan, but I'm not a Prince fanatic. I'm not. Yes. You know, I understand obsessive about it. But I love him. And um, I started listening to lots of podcasts. I got into this into Susan Rogers because I was really interested mm-hmm. in his work with Susan and knowing that he doesn't give up that kind of technical control too often. Um, I'm always fascinated with the people that he's he's chosen to place around him. So I guess that mm-hmm. brought me on a natural sort of trajectory on, onto the work you've done. And of course you've worked with, you know, Stevie Wonder, Scissor Sisters, um, mm. Duran Duran, Madonna, Brian Ferry. I mean, it's good to hear you hear you bring. It's here. It's good to hear you bring up artists that other people in in the states they don't bring up that handful of artists. But being yeah. in the UK, you know, even hearing you talk about Scissor Sisters is yeah. um, really warms my heart because I loved that band. I loved them, and I had more fun. I, I had more fun on the Scissor Sisters tour than just about any tour I've ever uh, had done wow, before or really? since. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was it just because there's such a because they're so crazy there's so much fun or um yes it's all of that it's everything and more and that's what jake and baby daddy and anna and del foster that kind of feeling like you think you've had it now here's more here's more for you and they would give you it would be over the top sometimes and um they are they yeah. are missed and much needed especially right now right in the world and God, um, yeah we really need that Five, yeah. five back, you know. we, we really need them. And it was plus it was the audience that the predominantly gay disco glam uh, crowd. It, I was yeah. enveloped 
in in all yeah. that beauty and and um i was part everything was resonant on those shows everything was vibrating figuratively and literally at the same wavelength in in these clubs so it would be it was just raw and unbridled and it was beautiful yeah. that was a, that was a great few years yeah i feel like i can understand why those shows would be quite different from your average band show because they bring mm -hmm. the spirit of a club night together That's which right. is very diff different from a gig I i'd imagine it'd be like a kind of similar thing with lady gaga perhaps was it yes yes very much so yeah, yeah. her approach was always very um i, I call her angular and I, 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 it, it's a, Interesting. she always had in every way, she had an angle to what she was doing. She was different than other people that had done it before and since, and she brought this aggressive angle to it and she sort of left it, always left it, left it all there, you know, uh, and, um, every, she treated every show as if it were her last. And, and, wow. uh, that was great. That's great for her fans, her fans and scissor sisters fans were direct. I saw so many people at, you know, at the Scissor Sister shows that I'd seen on Lady Gaga. So it's just that energy and that spirit and that sort of recklessness, borderline recklessness with Gaga was yeah. beautiful to be around. And in this era of safe, everyone plays it safe. So that that's the beauty of live versus studio. It's, it's a lot more aggressive and you can take chances. Mm. It sounds like a very, I mean, we're obviously going to talk about Prince a bit but I, I want to get round to that I don't just want to I know that you're not just about Prince there's so much more to you but I mean as a sound guy and, and as a for me as an audience member if I put myself mm -hmm. in that position um the sound guy can make or break your night you know sure. I've been to I think I'm sure we've both been to and everyone watching listening has been to a great band show that was absolutely ruined by the sound mm -hmm. um I mean were there any kind of gigs in your earlier years that really brought that home to you the importance of how the audience experience a band sure um I, I early early in my career i tried to emulate uh what i heard on the record and then when i mm. when i wasn't getting what i needed from musicians certain things were signature sounds or a, a certain bass line or something or a horn line that that i didn't hear on the record i without fear and probably because i didn't realize i couldn't do this I would go to the musical director or the, the players and I would say, I need this. Why can't you do this? This as a listener, I'm listening for this. And so I was very um, adventurous in my questioning why things couldn't be this certain way. I was going for a, a the, the recording. You, as a fan, you want to hear what you heard on the recording, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Some artists don't like that. They like to explore live. They like to take it to a different place. And I understand that as well. But I started mm -hmm. to realize that yeah. as long as I stayed as long as I stayed true to the recording, but then also owing to the artist's um, vision of what they wanted things to change. Gaga was very much like that. She changed things mm -hmm. a little bit for live. Scissor Sisters were more straight off the board. They were straight from the energy of the raw, energy of the records. And it was my job to sort of cement a lot of those songs mm -hmm. together and keep people dancing. And I took that on as a challenge. Um, but uh, every artist is different. I learned in my career to a mix from either the top down or the bottom up. And what I mean by that is, and I've never heard oh, any other engineer right. talk about this, a, a band like Scissor Sisters, Lady yeah. Gaga, um, Duran Duran, not so much. Um, the Fray, Madonna, not so much. I built some mixes I build with all the vocals and clarity and the pronunciation, uh, the, 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 sh the shining sort of shiny sound up top. I built that first and then I would bring up the subwoofers 
to sort of meet that energy. Um, Scissor Sisters, Lady Gaga, um, they were they were different. I built that from the bottom. I built that from the bottom low end energy. That's I wanted to move people because there's a lot of rhythm and dance and so movement. So I needed to make sure that was built from the bottom up architecturally. So I either build from the, the bottom up, the low end to the high end, or I build from the high end to the low end and just have the low end come up and meet that. And it depends on the act. And, yeah, and, and somebody has to think of that, right? Because yeah. a musical director is not gonna do that unless there really, really no sound. And an artist is gonna go, I don't know, you know, do whatever you do. But I actually have those talks and, and I want the artists to get better at how they communicate with. And Prince over the years, Prince and I got very, very good at communicating where he would sit in the crowd at soundcheck with his gun mic and he would say kick snare and, and John or Michael Blander, whoever, whomever it was would play and Prince would say, hold up. And he would just look over his shoulder at me and I go, I know I got it because I knew what he was going to say. Wow. I knew what he was going to say. It's too boxy or bring some more electricity. And that's a shorthand. That's a shorthand of how artists speak with engineers. I mean, it's a, you're kind of the dream, you know, front house sound engineer for, for a band that really wants to make <clears throat> it a beautiful experience, you know, not mm -hmm. just for the, the crowd, but for the bands knowing that they sound the, the best they can. Like, mm -hmm. And you do talk about it in that kind of architectural way. And, you know, like from the bottom up or from the, from the top down. Like, why do you think that so few sound engineers think about it to that level of detail? Um, I don't, I don't know because I'm, I'm not them, but I could only postulate, I could, mm -hmm. I could throw out a theory is that they, they aren't thinking about it as how it's going to affect the, the, um, the, the person that comes to the show, right? Mm -hmm. Um, they're not thinking about it as a crowd member, an audience member, a punter, or, you know, whatever you want to, uh, say it, they, yeah. I, I always approach it as if I'm a fan of the music that I'm mixing and I want to, and then I can just, I have the ability to help the music sound exactly how the fans want to hear it. And I always care. I always care about, I found that it, that it was best that I care about every fan, no matter if they were in the back corner or in the front row or wherever they were, because I know that those fans, you know, they pay good money and they come to see a show and I want them to, I don't want it to be on me. I want the sound to be yeah. spectacular. And that's gotten me in trouble with with bands in the past where mm. I um because artists never they don't really take they don't take well some of them don't take well to people who care more than they do. It's mm -hmm. crucial, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, if if they if they find that I'm asking for things and I'm saying, "Hey, I, this is building here, you might want to stay in C major and go into this song. This is a really big moment, and we could make this into a longer moment before this ballad. And that, see, that can, that starts stepping all over toes, because then I'm yeah. I'm questioning their um, set list choice and sequencing choice, and I'm questioning a musical director and what they're doing. And that's a, I try and be very respectful of of all those positions, and yet I always am myself. Um, it depends yeah. if I was hired on a tour by someone who came after me, like uh, Wang Li Hong in China. Li Hong yeah. came after me and, and contacted me and said, I, I love your work. I'm, it's my dream to work together. I think we'd make a great team. And I familiarized myself with all his material. And no one in the UK, no one in uh, the US has really heard of Li Hong, but he's, like yeah. I said, he's bigger than Beyonce in China. So in, 
it's the biggest so that, rock star in China, right? Yeah, it, it, easily, hands down. And so with that in mind, I had to listen to his material, get familiar with it. It was a different language, a language I didn't speak. I had to familiarize myself with the content of all the songs, even though they were being sung in Mandarin, because I wanted to know the emotive content. So I had everything translated into English. Oh. And then I said, oh, this is about loss and love, or this is about your daughter growing up and you then be giving your daughter away in marriage to another man and things like that. So if I know the emotive content, mm -hmm. that hel helps inform my sensibility about how to mix. And Prince was super, mm -hmm. super sensitive to that. He knew I knew the material really well. He knew I knew the lyrical content. He definitely knew I knew the arrangements as well as the band. Um, and as I've said uh, mm. many times before, he would call me a band member by saying, he would tell the band, we have to respect yeah. our, two, our two extra band members, Scotty and Silence. You know, Prince liked Silence <laughs> as a band member, and he liked me as a band member because I brought it all together, and I, I gave it to the people that came to see it. And I really yes. took that um, super seriously, uh, maybe, maybe sometimes too seriously, but I knew it was, um, you know, you're helping build a career. With Gaga, I helped her um, I helped launch her as an artist because we had spectacular shows yeah. to rave reviews and the sound was always mentioned and, and that's a responsible part. So I take that very seriously. And I'm, yeah. although I'm very humble about it as well, I think that's, you were asking about other engineers. I think a lot of times they, um, I do recognize a trait in engineers where they are, they are look, they are saying, here's where I've been. I did this and I've done this and this and this. And I always say, well, that's great. Yeah. That shows you my ethic, but I'm here today. And this is exactly what I'm doing is this show today. And if you take it one day at a time and one show at a time and one audience member at a time, yeah. I think it's difficult to get a big ego about it. I just want to help everybody hear things the way they, that you would want to hear it. If you came to a club or a theater or a shed, as we call them in the States, the outdoor venues or stadiums or whatever, oh, yeah. you want to hear it. Yeah. You want to hear it like you know it. Yeah, I think so. I, I think the sound guy, I, um, you know, I'm not like brown nosing you or anything, but it, the sound guy is a really integral part, like to the whole experience. And as you say, to that, that juncture in that person's career. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you have been in, you did spend quite a couple of years in China uh, working yes. with, uh, is it Wong, uh, Wong Li Hong? Wong Li Hong. It, it's, Wong it, Hong. You would say, you would say Li Hong Wang. But in China, they put the oh. surname, they swap it. So it's Wang Li Hong. Okay. I would be, I would be Baldwin Scotty in China. Okay. So, I mean, how, obviously you've toured all, all over the world. Had you spent a lot of time in China before? Because I imagine that's quite a cultural difference. Um, no, that is. Playing to that, those crowds. That's a good question. Um, almost no one I know in the industry has spent any appreciable amount of time in China at all whatsoever, whether it be lights, video, uh, audio, as a band member, <clears throat> no one I know because it's such a different market. They don't know yeah. really who Katy Perry is in China. They might, but uh, yeah. it's very, or Taylor Swift, you know, they're, they're probably peripherally aware, but they are not the stars that they know on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And so I had to get to know the culture and um, I spent as much time as I could. And, and I was awake to do, you know, because it was such going weekly back and forth between Minneapolis and China was and these oh, very wow. So you very, were commuting the whole time. Yeah, wow. Commuting. I would leave on a Wednesday and get there Friday morning, 30 hours door to door from, from, oh, from, God. from getting in a car here in Minneapolis headed to the airport and then getting to my room where I could FaceTime home. It was 30 hours. Oh, yeah. And it was that 
back and forth twice a week. So 60 yeah. hours a week in transit. Oh and and it was every week, uh, Wednesday to Sunday yeah. every week. And it didn't really help for me to stay there in between shows because we only had shows every Saturday night. <clears throat> it, right. um, because sure. I just would come in and do the show and then go home. But it would it that would have allowed me to get myself ingratiated to the culture a little more. I did a lot of yeah. research on my own, started taking Mandarin classes and started Amazing. figuring things out just because I want to know the culture because that, inf again, that informs the sensibility of, of how I approach the material, which ultimately yeah. ends up being a, a bonus for the fans because then they can take it in in a different way. But yes, yeah. culturally, there's a huge difference between the Chinese market and and, and Taiwan, say, or, and the U.S., the Western market. It's, they're totally different. They operate completely yeah. independently. Yeah, because the one thing that I find beautiful and, and really eye-opening is how crowds respond differently all over the world. And it's almost mm. like an extension of that that country's personality. Not to mm. stereotype, but it's... Um, yeah, it's you kind of get to know a feel of a country and the nation through the point of which they express themselves like did, did you find that with the, the Chinese that is th that is a very adroit point that is very good no one's ever said that 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 doesn't have to do with the material that has to do with kind of interstitially between every song and because in america you get a lot of that raising up a beer or whatever or, and a lot yeah. of woo you know woo. Yeah. there's a lot of yeah. <laughs> right and then when yeah. you go to europe generally and again sometimes to make for effect you have to generalize right but generally yeah. europe can be crazy if you ever do a show at the barrel yeah. you know that in scotland or yeah. some somewhere oh where yeah just Barrowlands yeah. is crazy <laughs> i mean it's it, yeah. the the stage hands are crazy the the people mm. are great they're just nuts and it's beautiful and amazing yeah, and so totally. doing doing shows like that that is just raucous all the time and yeah. If you've ever seen an ACDC show live from, you know, Stuttgart or somewhere, yeah. it, um, you just have to see a video of it. And they're, yeah. they're on 10 the whole time the crowd is. <laughs> and then in China, culturally in China, I would say that would stand against reason. That would follow because they applaud very vigorously after a song, but then it gets completely silent. Right. In a stadium, it goes completely silent. It's crazy. And I had to get used wow. to that because there's, there's no, there, it's such a relief. Uh, meaning it's, it goes from oh, everything to nothing. There's such a yeah. movement there in the sound, but that's culturally how they uh, show themselves. They will show a, a praise and applause, and then they will be quiet and respectful for the wow. next thing. So I had to work with Lee Home and he asked me, and I said, hey, maybe we could do this to sort of get those together. Or how fast can you take that jacket off and change? <laughs> and it'll, because yeah, you have to I get back up the elevator. And we tried to sort of use video clips and Lee Holmes very brilliant about how he and a guy his programmer named Mandrick Tan very uh, creative in the way that they sort of overlap things so that it didn't allow too much silence right but when you're dealing on a stage in a stadium that's so large you have to get the artist under the stage across to a different part of the stadium uh, stage under the stadium so yeah. it, it, it it's it it's difficult but it's it, you're able to do it but culturally yes that was that was um, there. There are huge changes between regionally between places in the world. That's right. I, I remember Japan being a bit like that, where they kind mm -hmm. of just literally go kind of crazy, and then there there is that respectful uh, kind of you know um, thing comes in where they're like, okay, like we're gonna wait for the next song now, and it's like, oh yes. my god, what's happening? <laughs> in so Japan, absolute that, silence. You, yes, you do feel that uh, there. Although in Japan, there is a feeling an undercurrent of wildness. 
that you yes. see when you go to bars and you go to yep. late night places where they still totally. allow smoking and karaoke and and you get this yeah. there is a wild undercurrent to the japanese yeah. people that's very that's, attractive and very beautiful yeah so you you yeah. can feel that energy still there isn't it amazing that you know all around the world people just want to really you can really watch too much news get really dragged into it and although there are, there's a whole lot of you know awful stuff happening of course mm-hmm. um which is sort of the universe slight imbalance in a way but it people just want to lose their minds and and kind of mm-hmm. be together in that moment and it's like it really you need those i feel like we've had a, a year and a half of not being able to remind ourselves of that you know it's like how, how have yeah. you sort of replaced that sense of unity in this time that we haven't been able to do live shows that's a great question um i found it at home and i found relief in um in being at home and being present in my family which i mm. i went from one extreme to the other i went from being traveling the world literally to the other side of the world back and forth every week yeah. for two for almost two years to being home for almost two years and but i plugged into my family and so it was easy for me to to take the same kind of energy it took to to travel and then to to keep it at home and invest in my house and my home and my family yeah. um but yes there is there's a whole world full of people that want an artistic response not only just what we've been missing artistically regularly but as a response to the ills in society all the things going on in the united states and in my hometown of minneapolis with yeah. the the uh, cops murdering black men to the lgbtq community um to um the needs of our culture we've had this drought literally a drought in yeah. this country but we've uh, of of water and and also of culture so i think we're going through a drought in in many different phases and everything is sort of metaphoric and i'm one who tends to believe that the world is always in balance <clears throat> no matter mm. if that's good or bad things happen it is balance it's like just the definition of balance it's just that we can create through art create a little bit better version of balance and i think that's what's been if i'm to answer maybe you didn't ask this but if if i'm no, to if, if if i'm to hope for anything it's that we have a restorative sense of balance in what we've been craving and it's not just music or air moving across us as we dance in a disco or something right it's it's mm. just we feel like we're being fed and that we're getting artistic response to social ill because art mm. and the, whether it's painting theater my wife is a, a an artistic director at a, at a theater oh, wow. um theater is on hold sort of here in the US um as it is yeah, probably same. most places in the world and so everything's sort of on hold except the music business you can cut a song and put it on on one of the um services shall we say and and you can still get the music <laughs> but you yeah. can't but you still can't go to a show truthfully we're getting there but we can't go to a show yeah. and really express ourselves with other people at full capacity and it'll be interesting to see how we get back to that um that the the journey back it will really say a lot of uh, about people and how we get back to to uh, or to a new place. I I won't say back to normal, but I'll say back to a new place. We want to get somewhere new. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I really agree. I mean, it, we've had so many reasons for division, you know, uh mm. kind of forced upon us and it's really been like a litmus test to people's moral compass in a way. And mm-hmm. um 
Yeah, we definitely need. I mean, we were able to play a show uh, a couple of days ago to like a full capacity arena, like the yeah. O2 arena in London. And that was surreal. That was really surreal because mm. it's sort of like you have this sense that whole you've lost like a, or not say lost, but you haven't been able to spend the time how you want, how you wanted mm. in the last year and a half. And suddenly you're in it and you're like, did I just, did I just, did I just lose a year? Like, yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It's kind of sense of time. So, I mean, when, what were some of, just to go back a little bit, like mm-hmm. in terms of your musical journey, what were some of your early musical memories? That what inspired me was was just being in a house with um, musical sisters. Like they, we danced a lot. I had three sisters, no brothers, and we would play soul music. Like we, that's kind of what we grew up on. My mom was in the country, and my dad wasn't really into music at all. But my sisters and I sort of gravitated toward soul music. And I remember having posters of Earth, Wind, and Fire and Lakeside and all these sort of oh, wow. bands that bands that maybe weren't the weren't on the weren't in the top forty. But they were deeper cuts, you know. Curtis Mayfield, like having yeah. a record, Curtis Mayfield record, um, and and um, it, it, having soul music on LPs where we would play them and dance, and um, some of them had a lot of low ends. So you had to put an extra penny on, you put a little uh, coin on top yeah. of the needle so it wouldn't bounce <laughs> off, right? That's how we weigh it yeah. and weigh it down so it didn't yeah. bounce off. And that, those were those were all musical memories for me. So it was just growing up as a kid who was really into top 40 music. I wasn't into anything avant-garde. I wasn't yeah. into any jazz or classical. I would listen to classical at night when I had the a radio by my bed, but it was nothing over. I, I wasn't over. I didn't overdo music. Um, <clears throat> when I started to play guitar in the mid eighties, I found out I wasn't very good at it at first, but I found that I had a, a <laughs> more of a proclivity toward the technical aspect of it. So I would, I became a guitar okay. technician okay. and that's what, sort of sparked me off and thrust me into, ah. um, I probably would have been a geologist or an architect or something else in life. And le- but this right. grabbed hold of me and I never set out to be a sound engineer. It sort of sought me out. And then I kept getting yeah. offers to keep coming back. And like when Seal, Seal really did it for me yeah. when Seal said, listen, man, I want you to come out and, and mix my tour. And I said, hey, I don't have a ton of experience doing this. He's like, all right, that's all right, that's what I want. And so that, that really, there are a few key artists that sort of said, you're exactly what we want. You know, we've heard interviews with you and that's what we wanted. And that was back then. Yeah. You know, so they, word gets around and then you get a good reputation. It's sort of, I just kind of hung in there, stuck with it. But I, I do like that about you, that there is a kind of recurring theme where you're, you're just completely honest about what, what your capabilities are. And, and there's a kind of like, a fearlessness there and but you also seem to sort of seek out these opportunities that you maybe you know I don't know but, but are going to change you for the better like mm-hmm. there's that thing I've always believed that thing with them um, that David Bowie said that you know always work with people for me I, it's important to work with people who are better than you so you feel yeah. slightly uncomfortable because that's when you're at the edge of your capabilities and you're going to learn something and right. do you feel that do you kind of uh, feel that, that that feels like a good thing to do in your, your career? Sure. That That's what they call that is, you know, when people say they're in the zone, what that means is they're yeah. in the zone of pro- the zone of proximal development. So that's what in the zone means. So you're in the zone of proximal development. You're there. You're in it. You're not intimidated by being surrounded by people that are probably better than you at what you do. 
And if we can deal with that, and I dealt with that early in my career, and but I, I guess I was, I don't know if it was fearless, but I, I, I was always okay asking questions of whomever. Mm. Um, when I was a drum tech early in my career for Prince, before I, as I was learning to run sound, he would, yeah. he would, he would be walking by me, and I'd say, "Hey, man, can you know, can we do this, or do you want me to bring that over?" And I was always careful to, you know, ask him questions because his his day was, you know, his time was at a premium. I wouldn't ask him willy nilly, just anything. But if I had a real concern, I, or I would say, why do you do this? When you go here, why do you do that? Or why do you use those size sticks? And I was never afraid to ask whomever yeah. it was why they did things. And that, because it sort of naturally informed again, informed that sensibility of musicality in me and sort of fostered this thing. I've been given a lot of gifts from artists in listening to why they do things yeah. and, and how they do them. And then I sort of try and uh, re respond in kind and return that to them in the way I take on, mm. you know, they're mixing them. Duran Duran was that way. Brian Ferry was that way. He was, uh, Madonna was that way. Brian Ferry with Roxy Music, he was pretty hands-off. He knew why I was there. Um, he, had, he knew that I didn't have a ton of, I mean, I remember leaving Duran Duran on, we finished a tour and then I picked up with Roxy Music right away and did a tour of the States with Roxy Music, yeah. got done with that. And then we started again with Duran Duran. They might've postponed by a couple of weeks so that I'd be available. <clears throat> we went to Japan and the first thing or something like that. And, and the first thing they wanted to do was sit yeah. me down at dinner and they all wanted to say, okay, what was Brian Ferry like? What was it like? Like they all wanted to know because they all looked up to Brian Ferry, right? All five guys said, what did he do? What did he do? How did he do this? Yeah. And, and the guys from Duran Duran, you know, they were so oh. beautiful. They, those guys, not only physically, they were all like yeah. beautiful specimens, but they were beautiful to interact with whom to interact because they, they asked questions and then I postulated these theories and then they would ask, uh, ask me things back and I, we would go back and forth. I had a beautiful time with Duran, the Duran guys and they really wanted yeah. ideas. I remember one of my favorite memories, I, I don't know if it's you know top 10, but uh, right. Simon Laban and I sitting on this, on the bullet train in Japan, oh, and we were amazing. going past Mount Fuji. We could see we could see Mount Fuji off in the distance, and I said, "Hey, yeah. man, you might wanna, you, you might wanna take a look at this because we're passing." And he shut his Harry Potter book, and we, he looked at Mount Fuji, <laughs> and then and then he because the Harry Potter book just can, had come out, I right? Think it was okay, the, the Phoenix one, something about the Phoenix or whatever. Oh, and he had, he had, he was just reading it, and he and then he took out the set list, and he said, "Well, as long as I have your attention." like what do you think we should do with the set list here you know i don't know if some things are working and i said i thought you'd never ask like you need to do this and how about this and what if you did this wow, do, okay. do you think this would work and they and then pretty soon all five guys were like turned around on their chairs leaning over and it was a train so you could get up and walk around and and i was saying i was saying yeah, we yeah. should move this and then move please please tell me now here and union of the snake up there and I looked around and these five guys that I had looked up to as a, in, as a, as a youth, as yeah. a team, were all asking, were listening to me say, this is what you should do. And that was a big moment. And it was very humbling yeah. to sort of, I sort of got nervous for a second you know, because I was intimidated, yeah. but I was so, I knew what would work. You know, I knew as a, mm -hmm. as a, um, uh, as a, as an audience member, what I would want. And so that, that really helped. And um, I love helping artists. And I, I, I think at the end of the day, if, if I work with someone and they say, oh, I'm better because I had Scotty there for a while. And Tegan and Sarah were yeah. lovely. I don't know if they're as popular in the UK, 
but Tegan and Sarah are the Canadian. Uh, uh, yeah, the, they, they had their moment. They had their moment over here mm -hmm. for sure. And they, and you know, they, um, uh, Sarah said something really lovely when I left to do another act. Um, I said, Hey, I'm gonna have to quit and go and work with this. Cause they've got a three-year tour. And she said, well, we felt like we kind of had you on loan anyway, and but we learned so much from you and we appreciate you so much. You know, because we talked about vocals and we talked about yeah. intent and I talked about trajectory and where they wanted to be in their career. And I sort of said, yeah. I drew a little chart and I said, if you are, if Michael Jackson is here as a performer and your favorite songwriter is here as a songwriter, where, do you, where are you? And they both drew a yeah. little dot where they thought they were and their dots were at a different location. I said, oh, so you think you're oh, wow. better performer and you think it's, it's better songwriting. And so I said, you two need to get your dots together and get, you know, be up in this corner of master songwriter, master performer. Yeah. So it's just that kind of, when you get old enough and you've experienced enough and when you've taken it in and I haven't been, oh, you know, I haven't been clouded by dependency issues on the road. I've always been, I've always kept it clean and that's just yeah. a part of who I am as a person. And I've always taken it really seriously. So I've seen a lot of dependency issue uh, in artists and touring crew in my career, mm. but I've, I've never yeah. judged anyone. I've just said, okay, well, I'm on a different path and taking it really seriously and just trying to be better than when I started. I think that that kind of rep, that kind of reputation sort of just, it always escalates. It's a long escalation. Yeah. And then being old enough to sort of know when to talk in a room, when to be quiet, when to take things in, oh all God. of that, that experience is in a way it's musical itself. Yeah, that, 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 you know, just because you have a thought doesn't mean you should speak it, you know, that kind of like, that's like um, the restraint and, and the, that you have to learn as well. And, and um, just simply reading people and knowing mm -hmm. when is a good time and to mention something. And it's, um, it's kind of like you've got a degree in psychology as well as like sure. the whole sound thing, because I mean, you have worked with, with big characters, you know, and mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a help or a hindrance being a fan of the music what would you say um some of the artists pr probably half of the artists with whom i've worked i was a fan of their material beforehand and oh i don't know most of the others i either wasn't a fan didn't follow them and i found that actually to be easier um because then i studied the material in a different way right. <clears throat> i didn't have a uh, you know what i'm saying i didn't have a um an idea locked in my in my brain i actually studied it very musically and as mm -hmm. in the production style and then i would call a producer and say how did you do this and like i can i can't really tell what you did there and they said oh don't worry that's going to be on track that'll be on a backing track vocal track and i said oh cool so you know and we we always figure it out but i'm i'm always interested in calling producers seeing how they did certain things trying to re yeah. recreate them in the live setting making making artists feel happy making artists hear how it sounds in the house that's a big one. Prince never wanted to hear. <clears throat> he he didn't want there to be. He famously didn't want there to be uh, uh, two consoles, two sound desks, one for the artists on wow. stage and one for the crowd. He wanted one sound right. desk, and he wanted it to sound like a house, like he was in the house on stage. And and lots of times right. in his career, including at the end and the piano show and the uh, the Saint Bart show on uh, New Year's Eve, twenty sixteen. Um, we, we I mixed his monitors from my console and it was it was basically just a house mix and I just turned it on in his wedge and so he he wanted to blur that line between 
hearing sound in the house and hearing on stage because it sounds vastly different right. in ear monitors oh, or in floor monitors. Yeah. And, you know, as a performer um, yeah, and you can yeah. speak on, speak to that, how different you sound and how the inspiration changes between being in front of speakers and being behind them. Mm, yeah. I mean, it, even things like it took me a long time to get used to in-ears because mm -hmm. the whole experience felt very insular. But mm -hmm. doing gigs without that was damaging my ears. Like when I think back about, you know, all those gigs, um, uh, the big, big stadium bands did, you know, that Prince did in the 80s with just monitors uh, mm -hmm. but, and, and not getting a single note wrong, not dropping a beat, yeah. like nothing, not being out of pitch, not even stopping for a drink of water. That's another question. He never, mm -hmm. I never saw Prince drink on stage. No. How can you do uh, all of that and not drink water? I'm like, I have, I, I, I've got a friend uh, <laughs> from a long time ago who was pretty and who was famous. And she said, I'm pretty sure he signed a deal with the devil somewhere <laughs> because that, and that was in jest. But, you know, she said, I'm pretty sure there's a date written down that it's going to end for him because, you know, he, he would never, he was never off. Key. I mean, he was, I saw some, I saw some video on YouTube where it said like Prince fails or something. And it came up just because I'd been watching videos of Prince and yeah, it showed all the times he slipped and fell or rain fell on his head or, or bad notes and things like that. And I had never heard him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in all the years over the course of the 26 quarter century, I'd never heard bad notes and I'd seen yeah. him out in front of, in front of PAs, in front of speakers where I knew there was a time difference between what was happening and when he could hear it. And he still was on. You know, and oh. I thought, well, this is strange. You know that he's actually singing in front of the music he's hearing because he's it's got to line up with with what he's doing. So um, that guy was a cat. You could drop him out of any floor <laughs> of a building and he would land on his feet. You know, he was just one of those really so. super rare performers that understood how audience reacted. He understood and appreciated um how to change arrangements arrangements for live the live setting versus yeah. the studio version he yeah. um i think he made some critical <clears throat> i think he made some if i were to be really candid i'm always honest but i have in 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 in, in full candor i think he made some mistakes with tempo i never heard mm -hmm. dmsr at the at the the really perfect tempo which it really kind of is when the song is played, yeah. I, I don't know what it is, 98 or something, but there's a, there's a tempo that DMSR is just sits there on the record and it's really, but he would always do it really fast. And just I always thought, swings. cause he would say concert speed, concert speed. Right. And it took all the funk out of it, took the back end out of it. So then it was always sort of rushy. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I think he made some tempo uh, uh, errors, but um, he usually had a reason for that. Either the show was going to be three hours or he would just do a little medley, a mashup and make the tempos quicker, right? And fans usually go, oh, oh, well, yeah. at least he played Forever In My Life, you know, or at least he played uh, this song, at yeah. least he played it. But, you know, I call that the Elton John syndrome. Yeah. When you have so many hits, Elton John can almost not play a show. It would be four hours long, legitimately. Bruce Springsteen, Someone's Bruce, Springsteen, be disappointed, you know. Bruce Springsteen just decides to play everything in its entirety. Um, Elton John, <laughs> what I call the Elton John syndrome is he mashes up 15 songs in, into a medley. And then you go, ah, you know, cause it, I, I, my, my thing is a composition is a composition fully. And as yeah, a fan, I like to hear the full, I mean, if, think of Adele and how emotive her 
content is. She's got a ton of emotive yeah. content in her in her material. Yeah. If you start to slice and dice those things, it takes away the pinnacle of the feeling of the material. So um, sure. if I ever thought things were getting out of control, I could mention it to artists, sometimes with a bad result, a negative result. But at least I always feel like and have felt in my career that I've never shortchanged how I felt the material was going to be received. I, I always yeah. would fight for the material itself and how it wanted to be received. Because I've, as I've said before, I always got on the side of the material. Um, I found the audience could sometimes be fickle and the artists could be flighty and, and strange. But if I, if I really fought for the actual songs themselves and the life of the song itself, um, I always felt that that was a good ally. I was a good ally to song, to material. And, and I didn't find other engineers doing that. They just get what they get and they mix. And some of them are really crappy and some of them were astoundingly good. I've heard some great mixes in my time. Um, but I could always tell when the integration of the engineer and the material or the engineer and the artist um, was not a was not a good one. I could tell when it yeah. did, clicked and when it didn't work. And I always tried to make the integration between what a Gaga fan, what a Scissor Sisters, what a Roxy Music fan, Duran Duran or Donny Osmond. You know, I mean, he was an American icon star or, or Prince or it yeah. didn't, didn't matter. Some I always wanted the the material and the crowd to really be integrated, where it felt everyone felt on mm. the same in the same energy in, at, at all times. Yeah, you, you really understand that sort of symbiotic relationship that mm. people have with their music because they they're experiencing it with all their memories every time they hear it and they experience mm. it with all those emotions attached to it, and you seem to meticulously tap tap into that. You know, that's what I find kind of special because you've sort of got to step out of your own way to do that. In, in an industry where it's full of egos, you know, you're saying like you just put the music first. And I suppose that's a little bit, oh, you know, for a lot of people who are just using the gig to audition for their next gig sometimes, mm. it's like you just sort of don't buy into that. So it's really refreshing to hear. If there's a, if, if I'm to be critical of myself, I think the a mistake I'd made over the years is that I didn't try and graduate my talent, my skill set, which is obviously by where I've been is large and vast and deep. Yeah. And what I I liken it to, I guess I'm just riffing right now, but it's sort of like the cop that walks the beat and who never gets promoted to sergeant or to lieutenant or to captain. They just walk right. the beat. They still stay at what they've been doing. They might be the best beat cop out there, swinging the stick and yeah. walking the streets of London, right? But but they <laughs> may but they but they're the they're trying to be the best beat cop they can be, and I haven't moved my skill set into being a producer or being um, uh, or being a, a tour uh, uh, trying to write tours for people and be a show director and be um, mm. and come up with ideas like that or even tour, be a producer in the record industry. Prince used to say that you, especially on the piano show, which was the last thing he did, um, you're the producer. I said, well, what do we want to do here? He said, I don't know, you're the producer. What do you want to do? And I, oh, okay, uh, well, uh, I can do that effect. And then that'll get us back to here. And he's like, great, because then I'll go into Raspberry Beret or whatever. So we were kind of working together. Right. And he would just say, well, you're the producer. So that's a lot to put on. And wow. he, he, at one point in early 2000, it was probably early 2000s, 2002 or 2003. It's when Dave Hampton was there. I recommended Dave and he, went on to a colleague of mine from whom I learned a lot about the 
relational side of the industry the most I learned from Dave Hampton. Um, yeah. And Dave, uh, wow. and Dave was there. I remember he was there that day even. And Prince stopped me and said, you're doing the wrong job. You should be a producer. You know, you should be producing music. And, and I didn't, um, I guess I was too busy working with him to take the time to actually do that. I look back now and kick myself for not, he said, this is, it's your studio. You know, I, oh, okay. So he wanted this sort of relationship that everybody could come in and work on things at Paisley Park. And we would have parties at night and we would work during the day and never sleep and never eat and just drink coffee and then go back and do the, <laughs> you know, it's always about creation, always creating at all times. Yeah. And I, I regret if I don't have a, that's a strong word for me, but if I were to regret anything, it would be that I didn't take up the opportunity that I had to learn to move my obviously high skill set into another area. I'm still the beat cop, still mixing yeah. live shows, but it's just that I bring, a, yeah. I'm not even sure how it's different. I, I know how it's different. I, I bring to artists, I give them lots of um, choices. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Yeah. Ga Gaga and I got along really well because she was already a fan of, of my work with Madonna and Prince and said, Scotty, you're here because of who you are. I want you to do whatever. And we would sit and I'd say, well, let's get aggressive. Let's get aggressive on this song. And she's like, yeah. I love it. You know, so what Poker Face was one and, and Paparazzi and these songs were, she wanted to get really oh, wow. aggressive on the vocals and I could meet her demand. That's what it is too. Being able to have a response to an artist wow. when they say, I'm looking for something. I'm not sure what it is. What have you got? And to be able to say, okay, well, let's do this. Mm. It's just working together and trying to make it better for the, you know, for the, the people that come to see the show and hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, you, you mentioned, um, I've got a, I'm sure you've mentioned it on other podcasts many times. In fact, I know you have because I've, I've heard quite, I've listened to some, but um, okay. you started with Michael Bland doing drum teching and then that brought mm -hmm. you into, into the world with Prince. And then you, you left a uh, tour with Sheila E. Yes. And then like kind of went back to Prince. So, I mean, did it kind of teach you um, the importance of taking a leap of faith when you thought, oh, no, I should stay to this. And then Sheila's like, oh, you should come and do that. Was there this sense of, yeah, I shouldn't stay in one place too long. Or... Yeah, that's another great question. Um, and thank you very much for your exhaustive research because I <laughs> always consider Pleasure. myself, I, I consider myself not important enough in the realm of these artists to be seen. Um, oh, you are. Would, See, I disagree. That, I think you are. And that would, and I appreciate that. That would, um, that would, that would be counterintuitive to me doing interviews then. Then I, well, if I'm not important enough, why do I do interviews? But I think it's yeah. because I have a knowledge and that it can help someone else, someone else out who's in the industry to know how to aim, know where to aim. Totally. And, and, um, uh, I certainly yeah. learned, I certainly learned that, that every pond is a small pond. I'm making this up right now, but when I thought okay. I had seen the best musicians in the world in Minneapolis, when you see Michael drum and Sonny Thompson playing bass and, um, the band, the bar band, the Prince would come and see. I thought, well, they're the best musicians in the world. Look at these artists coming to see them at a bar. All these different artists every week, a different famous artist would be there and, and watching and coming to see this band and listening to them. Um, mm. I learned that they're, they're not necessarily the best music because you get out of that pond of Minneapolis and you start meeting all these other incredible musicians. And then you go to another part of even the country and see yeah. that this rock thing, there's something to this northwest this this seattle thing there's something to it or going down to louisiana and seeing there's something to all these special 
um, regional, these jazz players in, in the Bayou and, and, and New Orleans. And the, you start to see that that's a different pond. And then I start to think, well, this is the best. This is the best right here. And then I go over to China and I meet probably the best musicians to this day that I've ever heard. And not, wow. not just because I'm at a certain place in my career, it's because they are all so studied and so meticulous and so soulful yeah. that I go, this is a whole new level. It makes me want to start to mingle those musicians with different artists. I think it'd be incredible to put Brian Ferry with a bunch of Taiwanese and Chinese and Thailand musicians from Thailand and see how, what that would create. Wow. I would think that would be incredible. Yeah. And maybe that's what happen. I should... Yeah, that's maybe that's where where my maybe next thing is because you are the this orchestrator. Yeah, it's not unlike mixing faders. I would just be mixing personnel, and that would lead me to go. Well, maybe I'd be a good manager then, or maybe I should. And a lot of people, you know, we all of us go through this. Everyone listening to your podcast, everyone in their careers says, "Well, maybe I should do this, or maybe I should do this." And we live in a time now where you don't have to work in a factory for forty four years you can change jobs and especially young people say, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not going back. I'm just going to go do something else. And they're not afraid. I love the, I love youth yeah. now. They're unafraid of yeah. taking chances and taking risks and saying, no, I don't want that. Well, you went to four, you, you went to six years of, of, of university for this. And they go, well, I don't care. I want to do something else. I want to be in music or I want to do this. And yeah. I love the feeling of being unafraid. I really, I'm attracted yeah. to that. Do you, do you think, I mean, I love that. I, I like that too. That's kind of what drives me is to do something that is, makes you afraid in a way. You've got to kick your own ass. Otherwise, mm-hmm, you, you, mm-hmm. what are you going to, when are going to have to show for it? But I like that you went down the route of, of pure experience versus uh, being away from real life experience and studying it because like real experience is, is the qualification at, at the end of the day in a way. So um, I was wondering if, if working with Prince instilled a greater sense of that fearlessness, because he, you know, he's all, he's always made up, made the rules to himself, you know, he's always marched mm-hmm. to the beat of his own drum. Yes. Did that kind of rub off on you as well? A lot of, a lot of artists kind of claim that, you know, like somebody like, Oh God, I'm going to be taking a shot here. Some <laughs> of the big pop icons that exist now, I'll say that. Mm. They'll say, well, I okay. do what I want to do. I'm doing my thing. Well, they're not. They're following a blueprint of that's basically a soulless, creative meandering. How about that? That is not rooted in fearlessness. It's rooted and plotted firmly in success. And they are all baby steps. When you have something to protect, you are going to take baby steps to protect it. Prince never took baby steps. And he wasn't the only one, but he was the the most well known for that he didn't care what you thought he was going to be and i think to a degree in his career the longer his career got the more he wasn't just responding by putting out music he was having finding himself having to respond to social ills and even the industry itself you know he had this real hard on for going against the grain of the music industry and I think in a way yeah. that sort of hurt him, not only in sales, but that's just trivial. But it went, it just took away from his creative um, journey. He started to have an ax to grind. Yeah. It's like rich people complaining about other rich people. And you kind of go, well, 
where did you lose that sense of being hungry? You know, sometimes it, sometimes you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable yeah. as someone once said. So sometimes it's okay to be uncomfortable because that drives a certain thing. Yeah. And I think you have to, we have to pick our battles and, but I do appreciate that Prince took big swings. You know, he was either going to, uh, he was either going to score that big winning thing or fumble it and, and fail miserably. And we saw both in his, in his life, in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, but I appreciate that about him. Mm. I think that, that that is to be commended, that someone's going to actually not be safe and leave something. I mean, he every time he said he didn't want to play the hits again, I, I was in the room probably three times when he claimed that before a tour. And I believed it. He sold me anyway. And I'm, I've studied body language. And I study that stuff. And I, he was firmly like, I don't want to play those songs anymore. I mentioned, I'm interested in new things and new, that's why he switched people so much. Cause you would figure, well, once you've had Michael Bland or once you've had John Blackwell, why would you want someone else? Cause he was into the creative exploration of yep. putting different people in to see what he got and how it changed him creatively. I just think that he maybe spent too much time mm-hmm. complaining about the system and the game and the way it was rigged. And that directly came out of the bank account of his artistic um, uh, trajectory right? He started to have a, Mm. he started to focus a little bit too much on one thing and not enough on what got him there. And artists, that's not a crime. Uh, If anything, it tells you about his humanity and what he felt people should be owed. Uh, People of black and brown people, people of, people of color, people who, of, of, um, uh, who were, uh, I would say underserved is the correct term now, instead of at risk, you say underserved people who are underserved in, in communities um, th- there is that they need a voice. They need a creative and artistic voice because we follow our artists, right? And our artists follow the happenings yeah. of the world. So ha- things happen in the world, artists respond to them and people follow the artists and then people create the world. So it's mm-hmm. sort of a cycle that happens. And yeah. um, I once Dave Hampton once told me that politics, politics is the music business for ugly people. So it's, it's, <laughs> Yeah, so, it really is. <laughs> right. So you just yeah. you, you people peop, and and you and, but we all follow politics and we follow geopolitical yeah, issues yeah. and we we follow who's taken yeah. over who and who's and, and and that turns into a game and a sport and I think it's a lot about yeah. sport now and it's less about being fearlessly creative. I don't see many um, creatively yeah, fearless. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think I it's I kind of agree with what you say. It's more of um kind of an, an intentional sound bite you know that's easy mm-hmm. to believe rather than you know do as actually doing i'm a kind of believer of you know do it then talk about it don't just talk about it do you know what mm-hmm. i mean but um yes when um so when you were kind of ingratiating yourself in the in the life of prince and, and you had come he'd brought you on board um did it take you a while to understand that this is something a little bit different like you had to learn all of these mannerisms, all of these little cues, and mm-hmm. it seems like a much more complex situation other than your your average band. It's like if you yes. if he brought you in, he could understand that you had the capabilities to experience it on quite a deep level, and he could probably take you somewhere that no another person couldn't. And you were either up for that ride or you're not. So it's, that's how it kind of feels from the outside. Yeah, uh, and that's and that's how it was, and you uh, really accurately. Um, described how I did feel at different times. Um, watching 
the fearless and creative part of him was probably most um, displayed at after shows. Um, right. There's a lot that can go wrong at after shows. Yet we would tour Japan, Australia, um, Europe, the U.S. We would go and do these exhaustive. We were already exhausted, but Prince realized that there was creativity in that margin of exhaustion. I don't hear yeah. anyone else talking about that. No one mentions <laughs> that. They might make a sort of a vague reference to that. But Prince lived in the margins. He wanted to do. It right. was all all the strength when you're lifting weights comes in the eighth, ninth, tenth repetition. The last repetitions, yeah. whereas all the muscle is built. And that's what Prince did. He wanted to flex that muscle under yeah. really hard, difficult circumstances. And, and he did. That's where he got it. He didn't, he wasn't exhausting anything during a photo shoot when he would sit and just go. That wasn't taxing to him. But when yeah. he was really tired and we had done a one hour sound check, a two and a half hour show, and then we were in our second hour of an after show at four in the morning in Sydney, and we we're all jet lagged and tired, and we had a show the next day. That was the best. That's when the best things happened. Yeah. That's when all the margins were blown out. And and um, so he, just by example, you know, we had some discussions about fearlessness, and we had a discussion, a really beautiful one, uh, uh, when he was about to go in and talk to um, an artist uh, who's popular here named Andre Three Thousand. Um, was, oh yeah, yeah. He's amazing. He's he's was in a room, um, in a in the the game room, and Prince and I were talking outside the game room at Paisley Park on the second level, right by the elevator. We were just hanging out, leaning over the railing, both looking the same way. We weren't looking at each other, and we had a really lovely talk for about fifteen minutes about oh. being being uh, about courage. And I wrote about it in the uh, I alluded to it in my liner notes on the box on the one night alone box set, and right. I talked about courage being courage over conformity. And he was telling me that about, he always wanted to keep courageous. He always wanted to keep that theme in his life, being courageous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think he did, you know, he, he had the courage to take on the system and take on convention and take on people saying, you can't announce a show. And then 48 hours later, be in Amsterdam and playing at the parody, you know, playing at a place in Amsterdam and he would say, oh, you want to bet? And he would just do it. He'd do it because <laughs> he would do it yeah. because he was always challenging authority and he was challenging the, the system and the normal normalcy of, of the world, the yeah. way things are always done. And in that way, there is no one. Um, I've seen courageous people in my life and I've worked with courageous artists and I think I've been lucky to do so. But they were courageous at a different point. Prince had it throughout his entire life. And I think yeah. he was creative and cour courageous yeah. right up to the end. He went, he went out being courageous. Yeah, really? Really? Um, I was going to go in, into a, um, a bit more of the, uh, the live shows. I thought it was interesting that he would get the text to come out and hear the sound of the instrument from the front. Mm -hmm. So that it wasn't just you. The, the, the ownership of that sound wasn't all down to you. It was you yeah. plus every person's individual instrument like for me that's just the dream i'm like please can that mm -hmm. just be the norm for yeah. everybody yeah you know um that and you were also mixing like 80 to 90 channels on the desk for all these kind of everything it's just um, yeah we were we were up into the the 90s um in channel count the biggest desk i used with prince was a 96 channel desk and we had almost all of them full i remember two or three being not used um wow 
but that's that's that shouldn't be uh, taken as uh, impressive. It's if anything, sometimes that's poor planning on my part. That's oh, yeah. saying, okay. well, we have you know we have 130 channels or 165 channels. And like, well, why? What, what what is the poor planning involved in that that would lead you to need necessitate renting a giant desk or two big sound desks and waste the artist's money if you can get it done on a smaller right. desk and and have right. more and say, well, maybe I don't need a microphone just for the cassettes or the, you know, or the the kalimba or these little things, <laughs> yeah. right? And that yeah. or the bell tree. Why don't we just put a sample of a bell tree in a pad and then it's electronic and it sounds better. And yeah. it just depends on what's yeah. important. If you're mixing a, a a Latin, if you if I was and I've mixed quite a bit of Latin music in my career, um, then you have to have real percussion instruments because they need to have a breath and a life to them. But if it's simply a, mm. the sound of bells, a bell tree, in a in a ballad like Scandalous or something like that, then put it on put it in a, a sampler. You know, don't waste the channels. Let's get it to a manageable right. size where I can reasonably manage listening to you know, um, 64 or less channels. That's my, that's always my goal is less than 64. Cause I can keep that many yeah. in front of me. If you have too yeah. many, it's, it's usually a sign of poor planning and it right. wastes money. It wastes the artist money. It makes the ticket prices go up. All that sort of stuff is factored into how much you pay as a, as a fan. So I like to yes. take Susan Rogers. I like to take her advice. She told me this saying, and I loved her I, to this day for it. The best do the most with the least for the longest. That can't be overemphasized oh, yeah. the best do the most with the least for the longest if you can show that you can do the most and with the let with the least um it's usually probably it's it's a good sign and the other thing yeah. you were talking about about um i think there's a the secret to life I, as i heard someone say once is to not under promise and over deliver because a lot of people say well just under promise and then you over deliver and then you look great. But but the, the secret to life would be to over promise and over deliver. So you over promise, you yeah. promise more than maybe what your capability is, just yeah. a little bit more. And then you get a little nervous and that you get frosty and you sort of go, I really have to do this because I promised this. And so you over promise yeah. by, by a bit and then you over deliver. And then then that that's a that constitutes that shows growth. And when you get in that growth mindset, yeah. as people have talked about fixed versus growth mindset so if you get in a growth mindset then you're always sort of trying to elevate your game and sometimes in my career i elevated the game of what i've seen going more than the artist was expecting or more than they wanted to work and as soon as that happened then it exposed them for being lazy and that's not good yeah. then it puts me in a really wow. precarious position why aren't you joining me why aren't we doing this why aren't we doing this why aren't we switching and then it becomes this like well i don't want him around because he's pointing out frailty and weakness. So that can yeah. be a, you have to kind of know, I've never, I've always been hopeful that I wasn't protecting my income, that I would actually push artists. I mean, what do you do in that position? Do you kind of take a step back and, and be a bit more um, sort of paternal about that position mm. and make allowances? Because I feel like you're always thinking ahead of yourself, thinking ahead for the other person, kind of making like, you're thinking in, in like 360 degrees. It's kind mm -hmm. of amazing when I hear you talk. I, I really do enjoy listening to you talk because I feel like there's always little nuggets of metaphorical truths and, and um, mm. little things to grab hold of, which mean that you are completely present in your experience and you're able yeah. to relay that with total, That's total the goal, accuracy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess you're just, that's 
the way you are, right? It's I, not, you can't it, it's, I like didn't use, I didn't used to be that way. I think that, uh, it, it, that's, that's a development of function of being older and more experienced. And once we, I've seen that train go by 20 times at the same time every day, I say, well, I know what's going to happen at 204. The train's going to come by again. Okay. So I, I'm able to read artists and know what their aptitude is and know, because after all artists, they're not to blame. They only have certain amount of aptitude and skill. And, yeah. and some of the biggest ones we know actually are the most insecure because they yeah, feel like sure. they feel that that imposter syndrome, I think it's called, where they feel yeah. like somebody is going to come up and say, you're full of, you know, you're, you're not who everyone <laughs> thinks you are. And they have that. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it in performer friends of mine. I've seen it in art, musical friends of mine. And um, and that's very real because they maybe didn't earn. They didn't climb all the rocks to get to the summit, they just sort of got a helicopter ride a hundred feet from yeah. it. And then they, they yeah. went and just scored the the thing and then got given credit. So they always feel like there's a, the bottom is gonna drop out from them. But usually the musical mm -hmm. artists anyway, that have done the work or gone to school like Lee Helm has, um, or, or yeah. really truly wrote the book on soul music the way that Stevie Wonder did. Like Stevie, working with Stevie Wonder, I didn't have um, in all candor, I didn't have a lot to say about Stevie's show. He, he had his thing. He did his thing. Um, he had a, 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 a group of people around him, musicians that had been doing it for a long time. I wasn't going to come in and try and, you know, build new, build a new stage for him, so to speak, and say, well, you need to change all this. And I wasn't asked to do that. But I did focus my energy on listening to that man and how he, how his mind worked. And especially someone without yeah. sight, they're going to pay really particular attention to other things. So I learned a lot from Stevie Wonder just being around him, seeing how he was present with yeah. people and seeing how he was responding to people that he couldn't see. And uh, I mentioned it before, but I every time I talked to them, anytime I talked to them, almost always, he would hold the hand of the person with whom he was speaking. And I always felt, I always got down to the level where he was. If he was standing, I would just stand and talk to him. But if he was sitting, yeah. I would sit down or get down that's on beautiful. my knees. That's, and, again, that's, that's considerate. Because I didn't yeah. want to be, I didn't want to have the body language just felt wrong. Something felt wrong for someone who really literally wrote the architecture of what soul music is. So it, it, there's a reverence that I have for Stevie. And Prince understood it. That's why he loved Stevie as well. And they love each other. So yeah. um, I think it's just being, <clears throat> getting back to your original beautiful comment that I appreciate is being older and more experienced. A lot of people are old and a lot of them are experienced, but they don't put it to use. I've tried to <clears throat> keep putting it to yes. use and stay, stay fresh and remember all the little things and put them all together yeah. to serve that material that night for you and the artist and the crowd. Um, have you, just to go back to Stevie, I mean, mm -hmm. do, do you find it hard to sort of transition from working with somebody who has been part of your musical backdrop your musical chemistry for so long is there a sort of thing where you have to go okay mm -hmm. you know because i mean um i don't um, you know it's, it's obviously in the music industry you work with big names and stuff and then then you sort of cross that barrier where you you just see them as a human in front of you who's mm. achieved an awful mm -hmm. lot and you have a really deep respect for um but uh yeah it's just sort of mind-blowing sometimes isn't it when you come face to face with that it's a really it feels like a gift almost it is and it depends on the artist and i've been in 
tour buses and hotel rooms with artists who, who, whom everyone knows. And they have these moments of real insecurity where they find that I'm a trusted person that's really listening to what they say and responding to them as a person. So they feel like it's okay to say, hey, I really don't know what I'm doing or I'm, I have no confidence in this or this or this. And having to respond to that is sometimes, especially if there's someone I knew from, from as you say, beautifully, the tapestry of musical tapestry of my life. Um, I just try and be, you know, be present and answer them candidly and honestly and say, well, you, and ask questions. What do you think about this? Or how would this change if you did this? And, you know, because usually they say the answers to everything are inside of us. It's a matter of developing gardening and sort of yielding the, the, the answers from within ourselves. We usually know what the answers are. We just need yeah. confidence to know that that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Did you, um, just as a, I'm not going to detail too much, but did, did you mm -hmm. see The Summer of Soul, the film? No, no. Oh, tell God. me, tell me about it's it. Like, it's like, it, it's about, um, uh, like a music festival. Um, uh, it was happening at the same time as Woodstock, but mm. this was, you know, this was like a black music festival. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it opened up, you've got Stevie Wonder, you've got the Chambers Brothers, you've got BB uh, King, you've got Fifth Dimension, all in the, all in the first half an hour, not literally, but they've packed it in. It was Questlove that put all this footage together mm. and it hasn't been, seen or or watched until now they remastered the soundtrack and you know the footage of stevie comes out and it's raining a little bit and he's singing he's got the shades on someone's standing over him with an umbrella and then instinctively he just moves to the drum kit and they shuffle along with the umbrella and he just rips it on the drum kit and and then um uh maybe maybe staples who i know mm -hmm. some prince um <laughs> Mavis Staples and Mahalia Jackson singing together. And Mahalia Jackson is too emotional to sing this, um, like a ch church song. And, mm. and she gets Mavis Staples to start. And then it's just like, oh, Nina Simone. It's just, yeah. it's a really, like, it really inspired me. I've been wanting to watch it for ages, but just talking about Stevie, it's like. Well, it's, it's it, you bring up a good point is why don't, why, do, have, first of all, why haven't I seen that? And then why didn't I really know about that before too long ago? And then why isn't it part of the popular lexicon of everyone's awareness? I mean, what, excuse me, why is it not part of everyone's awareness, the summer of soul? But Woodstock mm. was, right? Where you had mm. arguably less big acts playing at Woodstock than yeah. you did at Summer Soul. So that the the um that says something about culturally about what is what oh. was present and what was being exalted at that time and Absolutely. so there's so much there's so much growth that has come uh, came out of that that's a beautiful beautiful thing about festivals is you get a lot of people together yeah. and they hear very different things i played a yeah yes i played i played a a festival with uh, i mixed uh, tegan and sarah and that the night before was rammstein and if you've ever seen <laughs> a german heavy metal band and then canadian twin sister indie rock yeah. duo it's but a lot of people that's how you start to you know that was that was uh spotify before spotify that was you know when you would oh. go to a festival and get get all these things given to you and then you would go and explore right and you'd buy lps yeah. and whatever and that's going on now just at a furious pace and we all have to keep up with yeah. that oh yeah uh we can't we can't always say i wish it were like this back then because that doesn't work for anyone except for you just 
look old and tired. Um, I'm on the edge of technology. I want to know about what's capable, but I don't necessarily think I need 22 speakers in my living room, right? Or, or I don't need to listen to anything in Dolby Atmos. I don't think that's the, the answer either. I don't need the bass yeah. here or this lead vocal behind my head. You know, I, I don't need that. I, I take, I have two ears. I can take everything in, in either mono, mono or stereo. And I'm quite happy about it. I always think it's more of the, it's more about the, the song itself than it is the production or the vehicle that gets you to that. So that's why I tell people that I would rather listen to AM radio than I would FM because I like to hear things small. Yeah. It's all like, for me, it goes back to the idea of like you listen with your soul. Like mm -hmm. anyone, mm -hmm. anyone can hear, anyone can hear, but we're going to hear different things depending on how we relate, how it emotes in us, how it or the physiology in us changes and, like what it makes us think but it's um yeah i mean um do you think um just talking about hearing like the science of it do you do you think well first of all how have you managed to protect your hearing over i have this? no idea i have no idea i, I have mean... i have <laughs> I, I get I, I used to say i mean i mean i used to I, I have to say i used to get tested after every tour i would get a, a oh, chart wow. and a printout and i would see where if there's any deficiency and i would sort of comparative you know do a comparative analysis and say oh this good. you know oh i lost a little after this tour but then i had it after that and i remember the only time i really felt like i had a deficiency for a sustained period of time and then it came back thank goodness was during the was when i mixed r kelly because we were on the road in germany and i think we did no we did i think i remember us doing maybe 18 shows in 22 days or something which is in arenas where you the sound is really captured and it was yeah. a lot of low end and it was just i remember being just physically exhausted not just my hearing but just physically drained every night and i couldn't i didn't know what i didn't know what that you know was how it was caused by just moving that much air all the time and yeah. having to listen so um intensely but um we had a break after wow. germany and we got out of germany and i was better it took weeks but it took several weeks at least three where i then suddenly mm. i went oh i'm back but i felt like it was, i was deficient for a while and thank thankfully wow. it wasn't long term but no i just was sort of blessed with ears that could take a lot and i mean if i could take it if i could take michael bland playing next to me um, <laughs> yeah. you know for four years or however long michael and i worked together i could do just about anything but i've been careful wow. i've been careful and i and now i'm a little extra sensitive to uh, I'm at least aware of the crowd for whom I'm mixing. So if I'm mixing for you yeah. and I look and it's all young people and they want low end energy or, or if it's scissor sisters and I have all my gay boys around me at Gaga and we're just dancing and everyone's having a good time. I know Amazing. I can let it loose yeah. a little bit. Right. But, um, mm. but if they're, if the age range is large, say it's eight to 80 or some kind of show like that, I will keep it more reasonable and I'll try it, make it more palatable for the masses. And so I think having the intention there, be, be i mean i can't wait to work with you someday i'll work with you oh my god i, I would be, be a awesome. dream like just listening to you speaking i'm just like look the guy takes into consideration the age range of the audience like sure. it's just um i, I mean I, I do have a you know this is why i was really excited to speak to you because not only is it very fascinating for you to speak honestly and with reverence about prince which i think is important but honestly as well and all of the other bands like people you know, when, when I mentioned that I was chatting to you online, people were like, it's so cool, it's so cool, because there's a hunger for the knowledge that isn't 
from the direct artist, you know, because mm. there's so many people interested in all other things that go out to make a show. But yeah, listening to the um, how in love with the process you are is, mm -hmm. is fascinating. It actually inspires me as a musician because I'm like, oh, good, that passion is out there, and it's I'm not just imagining it. You know, it makes yeah. me kind of want more out of what I do in a way. So it, it sure. does have a reciprocal thing. So I, I did read that. I don't know if it's true, but um, I was wondering what the most extreme you've gone to sort of change your venue is with Prince to change the sound. Because I read that he was asking you, like, why doesn't it sound like the studio in Paisley Park? And you're like, well, because of this and this and this. And it's like, well, mm -hmm. can we make it? And um, you were like, well, we could do it. It's like, okay. And you had to sort of rebuild stuff into the ceiling. And I don't know if I read that right. or Well, he was Prince was exploratory in the way he wanted speakers set up. Um, there were a couple right. of things, you know, Prince had seen a couple of shows and it changed the way he, he would be impressed. I, I can go back even for even earlier. Prince used to not listen to other artists when he recorded his music. He had a, he had a severe, a time of severity where he did not listen to other artists and he would record. He just did his thing and people followed him. Then yeah. he started to listen to artists. And then he started to sort of emulate what they were doing. That was the whole new Jack thing in the early nineties and the rap oh, okay. and yeah. cars and all this stuff in the videos. And then the name change all that time. He was listening to new Jack, like, Hey, there's something to this. He had certain people in his ear saying, there's something to this new Jack thing. You got to explore that. And so then he started to listen. It sort of pulled him off course. If I'm to be honest about it, that where, where I think he, he start when you start listening to people, you start being influenced by them. Um, one thing that, yeah. that he, so he would, he would go to, he went to a show before the piano show in 2016. Um, he, we were coming up with a formation of how to set the speakers for the piano show. And he said, well, I want them up in the corners. And I said, okay, well, man, that only works for one part of the room, the center. And he said, well, let's, can we just try it? And I said, finally, yeah, let's just try it. And we set it up and he listened to songs and I said, he said, see, sounds, it sounds great. And I said, yeah, come over here. And we walked only a few meters to the, to the right, to house right. And then he said, well, how, why is it now coming out of up there? And I said, right, because you're closer to that speaker. You're, you're going to be singing and people are going to be hearing you from over here. It's very disconcerting. We found a middle ground for that show. We found a middle ground for Australia. Right. I had speakers in the back of all the venues in Australia. Um, I didn't necessarily, oh, wow. I wouldn't have done that. Um, I did it because he asked me to do it. I disagreed with it. And I think the people that sat in those seats, <clears throat> two rows in front of speakers, were hearing it from behind them. And it was hard to time correct that so that they didn't hear it twice. They didn't hear right. it two times. So I, I completely disagree with the, what Prince did or how he wanted to do it. <clears throat> yeah. And I, But I respected that he wanted to reach new ground. He told me that he went to a show in Las Vegas, maybe. He saw the Beatles show where all the speakers are in the, in the seats. Oh yeah. And he okay. said, he said, you know about that? I said, yeah, I heard all about it. It's fantastic. But are you really going to have people sit down at your show? Are you really yeah. going to build a theater with seats that he said, yeah. well, maybe we could just have everyone have headphones, bring their own headphones. And I thought, well, then you've got a thousand <laughs> different type of headphones. Some people with AirPods, <laughs> some people with big beats. Yeah. It would sound different to all of them. So I, he was on oh, the right. No. He was on the right train, wrong track. You know, he, he, yeah. um, I admire that he wanted to explore, take emerging technology and taking music in a different way. 
he was uh, he was out of his um, bra size. He was singing out of his bra size when he was talk- <laughs> when he when he was trying to talk about the technical implementation of what that would do to audience members. I knew the science behind it, and I knew what yeah, would work no. and what wouldn't. But I was willing to go along with him and explore it. So we explored it, and then we found a middle ground. I'm not make. I'm not saying that with any ego. I'm not saying that with any importance. I'm not. No, I just know what I know what so. works, and I know what doesn't work. And at some point, um, the suit wears the man, um, or the car wears the person. Like if you pull up in a car and then you walk away from the car, and people are still looking at your cool car and not yeah. at you, you've done something yeah. wrong. <laughs> I do not want to be the first person to pull up. You're I don't want to be the first car. person to pull up in a cyber truck. Because no one's going to look at you. They're going to be looking at your cyber drive. So you you, you want to at least be, you want to try and go there, but you don't want to try and reinvent the wheel. There was nothing wrong with the wheel. We have two ears. Um, we've got, we've, we, we just need the music to be better. We need people to not write bubblegum yeah. songs now and have them all written by computers and by loops that you can pull off of Apple. We need people to actually play. And there are yeah. some people playing. The guys at 1500 uh, uh, Sound Academy, the, the 1500 production crew, there are certain, there, there are musicians that are still playing music and they still have it based in musical oh, theory. Sure. And they still learn theory and then break yeah. theory the way Lee Home does. He knows theory. He knows he speaks in Italian musical terms. He sings in multiple languages. He knows the emotive content, what you can write in, wow. in Mandarin, what you can give to Chinese people and the government will accept, and what you can sing to a Westerner. And he knows the difference. And people who are knowledgeable can then change their game and be more pleasing to different to more people. You can't just anymore be so one way and get away with it for a long period of time. You have to be know the marketplace and know the, the audience. As I say, it's the part of any performance. Know your audience. If you're, if you and your band are playing yeah. a wedding, you're going to play different songs in a different way than you are if you're playing your own show to people who have all come to see you. So it's knowing your audience. And I have to, as an engineer, sure. just know who's listening and how they're listening. And um, I'm lucky to have <clears throat> worked with yeah. Prince and I'm lucky that he decided to be so fearless, but I also had to pull the reins in and say, Hey man, this is not going to work or this is going to waste a lot of money or this is not going to be pleasing to the fans. And at least I always spoke my mind. I never had that mm. nervousness. You know, I lost that nervousness years ago uh, with, with him. And I would say, hey, man, you know, that's not going to yeah. work or this is going to work or we shouldn't do this or we should try and do that. And I, I would like to think that it added, it aided in his career. A lot of people aren't willing to, to be honest about that or they, they say they said things to Prince that they really didn't say. And I sort of always know who's <laughs> telling the truth, but. But um, there are people like Morris Hayes and yeah. even, and Kirk Johnson and people who really sa- said, told Prince when his slip was showing, as they say, hey, man, your slip is showing, you know, you got to fix the dress, right? It flies so, you know, alone. You fly, yeah. It flies on zip. You know, you need to, you need to, you need to fix this. And there are, there are people who, who did, there are those of us that, that spoke to Prince in that way and were really candid with him, like uh, Kirk and Morris yeah. and, and Roy Bennett and people. And then there are others that weren't. And so it's, I think it's just being, just knowing the end game is for me was how an audience received his music. And I was fortunate enough to only be thinking about mixing for those fans in the crowd that night on the one night lung tour on the, uh, but then we got a box set out of it, right? 
and so Prince was proud enough and happy enough with the recordings of, of that, that he, that even more people yeah. got to experience them or all the countless, the myriad of shows that I mixed that are released, whether bootleg or, or live official, um, the, the, the news, uh, the, the, um, the, the sound checks, uh, CD he released or the, um, the, you know, the, the C note record, I think it is. And, right. and things like that, they come or the live from Aladdin DVD and, those kind of things that that says a lot about trying to please certain people, but then more people benefit from it. And I think that's, I've always had that integrity woven into the fiber. It's not common that people can just take a live, um, you know, take a mix out the desk and release it as a live album. We're pretty much not doing anything to it. And that's testament to, you know, how everybody worked together. I sadly didn't see, those shows. I don't know why. I don't know why I never went to the shows. My, the I saw him do um, the Diamonds and Pearls tour at, mm. at uh, Earl's Court. Did you did you yeah. do this on that? I think I was drum teching on that tour. Yeah. Oh wow! So there we go. That was yeah. the first time I ever saw him. And I, I actually a couple of years ago I went to see uh, the Revolution. Mm. Did you do those ones? Yes, well? I did. You did that one. Where, where, yeah, oh, I wow. did. Where were you? What show? Uh, I went. Uh, I think it was February the 15th at Shepherd's Bush Empire. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Um, and of course, I wasn't, you know, old enough to kind of go and see him with the revolution, which would have been a dream. But mm-hmm. I did. I saw the new power generation perform on their own because there was a sort of flurry after his death where sure. they went out, you know, of course, for fans. But and it didn't for me, with all due respect, it didn't, it didn't really work with NPG. It was odd. Um, but with the revolution, there was still that everything still sounded exactly the same. Yeah, it was. Yeah, really and that's a testament to them. They were they're really those five are really ingrained. They were part of the granular granular uh, uh, element of of the music of those songs. Yeah, <clears throat> and they only play songs of which they were a part. And so yeah. you're getting the real McCoy. You're getting the real deal there. And MPG, the disadvantage the MPG had, and I know several of the members, and they're all great musicians. The disadvantage they have is there's such a, a, a varied lineup of NPG. There are probably 30 members of the NPG, at least. Yeah. And so that's very yeah. difficult to get a formulation that felt dirty and sweaty the way the revolution went through those days you know, with them. And I was old enough to see the revolution um, in, in 1983, around Christmas time when he played, when Prince played on the Purple Rain tour here in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, I think. And, um, and so I saw them as a youth you know in in high school and then to to be able to work with them and then help them with the sounds and help them present the same music to a new um era of fans was really uh i take that very very seriously and and i'm really honored that they would ask and that i was able to do it because i feel it's like i'm still serving prince in a way like i'm a good soldier for his music right i'm a good um somebody who's going to like continue to really care about people hearing these good songs, because I, I think I told this, I might, I feel like I'm repeating myself. I've certainly told enough people that when, when I was working with some, when I was standing around with someone and I believe it was, I think it now I recall it being in the UK somewhere or in Europe somewhere. And they said, Hey, you know, this, somebody said, Hey, this guy worked with Prince and the person next to them said, which one, William or Harry? <laughs> And I, oh my God. and I and I no 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 and I and I went oh. what, like oh. for a second I was puzzled I went what 
oh no and there was that double whammy like oh no 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 like you don't and they said no prince like prince oh purple rain prince they said i don't know who that is <laughs> and i said oh no so just but oh, that person God. was young enough where they didn't understand they didn't right, know who prince I see. Was. and every yeah. day that goes on that he isn't alive is more and more difficult is it not would it stand against reason that the the as you as you project out prince's yeah. popularity because he's no longer with us you yeah. those every that sort of those gaps magnify obviously over time yeah, and so then sure. you're going to have these gaps where prince isn't around to respond to, to a to a worldwide pandemic he's not around to respond to the death of a black man by the hands of white cops he's not there to respond yeah. in all those ways or even sell in a celebratory way of beautiful things happening now um yeah. we don't it's a it's so the being relevant is no longer going to happen and you can release music and say oh it's still relevant nowadays even though it's 15 years old and you go yeah but it is it really and because it was written at a certain time so we can make yeah. it's like horoscopes you can read a horoscope and go yeah that kind of did happen to me today or yeah <laughs> that is how i felt and it's not really real we're making it fit our life yeah how much, how much is how we making yeah that in there and so you can only do that for so long the fact remains prince is no longer with us he will never walk in a room again and the entire room changed i've never been around anyone before or since that when they walk in a room the entire room no matter who's in the room the temperature changed and the room wow. suddenly got a hell of a lot cooler not the, the cool factor in the room went way up when he walked yeah. in and it yeah. made people yeah. chill and you know and almost be on there be be everyone was every single person every artist every actor every singer that i saw that i watched see prince they all had the same look in their eyes every one of them they just oh they can't believe he's there they're taking it all in it's, it was a lot to take in and prince was very aware at how mm. magnificent he was he was and he would play it small but he knew his effect on people and I think that's part of the beauty. That was another composition yeah. in his life that was never written down or in song form. But the composition of Prince to change a room in any room he was ever in, he changed the room. And um, when you change a room, that is a composition, but it's just not a song. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's like a form of art, isn't it? Like I was thinking the other day, why, what do you think it is about Prince that, reached and touched so many people because I, I mean I just think mm. he was born to do what he did but why do you think mm. why do you what do you think it was a, about him that touched so many you know over the generations over all kinds of differences and and you know um you know different walks of life it's, um it, uh, so, kind of a phenomenon so some some of it was um <clears throat> was the cryptic nature in which he operated the the silence and the pensive mood and the big doe eyes and you never knew what he was thinking and he was very sort of enigma he just had a you didn't know how to read him and that is very yeah. attractive it's both off-putting yeah. and very attractive at the same time and but yeah. you were you're definitely right prince was born to do what he did and at least prince found the exact thing that he was born to do because as I'm stealing Bobby Z's line now, but Bobby Z said, <laughs> Bobby Z told me once, Scotty, 
if this guy wasn't going to be a rock star, he was going to be a janitor. Like that, that was the, he, his skill set was tailor made for being one yeah. thing. And if he didn't do that, yeah. he would be sweeping floors somewhere for the, his whole life because that's what the guy had. Oh. He had it all in one area. Um, and very few people are born to do one thing and actually have it realized. And um, quite often they all pretend that there's something else and they're good at something else. Prince wasn't immune to that either. He thought he was a fabulous business person. And, right. and as evidence showed, he was either genial or horribly, he failed miserably. So, you know, re sticking copies of musicology in the newspaper and at the concert halls, genius move. Um, the name change, failure. There, there was something, you know, like he had these, yeah. but he was never afraid. At least he wasn't afraid. I see a lot of people operating, a lot of people operate in their choices now. And they say, well, I really took a chance on this. And really they didn't because their form of failure is are already a success. So um, we just don't, yeah. it's really built into the system now. The system is game. We, we game the system now so that success is built into the equation because failure is not an option. There are very few people in life that take a chance so great that their career or their life, like a rock climber, like the, again, like the kid who climbs, uh, you've heard of the kid, the American kid who climbs uh, these faces of mountains with no rope and like there's no there's no there's no yeah. failure is not an option you can't fail and very few people yeah, take that good. anymore we're not playing with our lives but um yeah uh yeah certainly there's no one I, I learned from the best the prince was the best he understood how to take big chances and gained great success in doing so um his vault is full of songs uh some of them good probably most of them not good um otherwise he would have released them you know that's just how that's how it is you don't release your yeah. you don't release your bad stuff so um yeah. <clears throat> um there are some really I, I was involved in some touchstone some real moments in his career <clears throat> where i was there yeah. after a lot of his success when i joined him to mix him anyway he was still very successful when i was there as a drum technician as a band technician but coming back in around 2000 um, he, he was still successful in his career. And then he would just do things where he wasn't breaking new ground, but he was simply surviving on what he had done in the past. And, but, and that's fine too, because he still wanted to give his best show that, that, that was possible. Um, fortunate to be, uh, sure. to work with him. That was, I was very fortunate. And I, I think I took almost full advantage of that. I should have done a few different things. I should have probably tried to try to push that push that skill set a little more but i'm very proud to have served as a as a responsible part of people's enjoyment of coming yeah. to see your show amazing i have to ask i don't want to exhaust you in this for the whole interview mm. keep going um what was it like working with d'angelo I'm, I'm a huge fan of his and he strikes me as um you know as musically competent as any other instrumentalist but yeah um kind of uh he had a danger as well, like in the sense that Prince um, went for a stage where he had a kind of danger about him. I feel like D'Angelo had that edginess to him, and his music, right. you know, like Brown Sugar album was just like, oh my god, yeah. it blew up, and he was like a return to Sly Stone in a way. It was just like That's pure. A, yeah, the, he had the element the way Amy Winehouse had it, the way certain artists have the purity of history in them. And they could yeah, even yeah. they could even not be 
be, they could even not be self-aware of it, but it was there and you felt it and you felt the depth of their soulfulness, not just soul music. They have, there are, it, it exists in flamenco and classical and, and jazz sure. and, you know, it, but soul music, there's a lot of soul in soul music and some people are made of it. It's like cut, they're cut out of that same cloth. And D'Angelo, even though we didn't spend a, 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 an appreciable amount of time privately together, um, his, his uh, manager, Alan Leeds, is a good friend of mine. And Alan, um, under Alan's tutelage, D'Angelo knew where Alan had been and Alan instilled in him, hey, listen, you're part of, you're going to lay down new history and you're going to, and unfortunately, D'Angelo came along at a time where image uh, was a big, was a bigger deal. Um, and mm -hmm. so if you gain a little weight, suddenly you're not as sexy. So you're not as yeah. attractive. Your music isn't attractive to fans. Or if you, <clears throat> he still has every, he drips musicality, his band member. You mentioned Questlove earlier. Yeah. I mean, th there's, Questlove is one of these guys um, where he will help write the history through his position now that he's gained in life through his hard work. Will he'll now be able to turn around and give that back, not just in his drum, in the way he plays drums. He's he's giving that back as a filmmaker. He's giving that back as a producer. He's giving that back yeah. in the education of music history. And I've never had occasion to have a conversation. I would love to have a conversation with him. He clearly, as a huge Prince fan, he would know who I am, and I know who he is. And and he oh, um, sure. his 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 uh, he he knew what he saw in D'Angelo using the bass player Pino Palladino, such a great bass player, using uh, Questlove yeah. and knowing who to choose for for his um, yeah. uh, Hargrove, Hargrove and, and these musicians, the caliber of which are only come together on, with very special artists. Another artist that doesn't, that I don't even mention anymore yeah. that with whom I worked is, is Tricky. Now, I don't even know if you knew I mixed Tricky. Oh um, my God, I love Tricky. Tricky, really? Tricky. Oh wow. Yeah. Tricky, Tricky's uh, great. I love him. Yeah. And here's a guy who would come out, didn't sing. He rapped. He had a cool voice. He would turn his back to the audience. Oh. The light show was really dark. And it was, I don't even, you call it trip hop, I guess. Massive attack. And all the, there were several yeah. players in that, that movement, right? Scene, of trip yeah. Man. And I had more fun on Tricky's tour and working with his band. And, the, and just this energy and darkness and edginess and you never knew whether there was, there was going to be a fight yeah you didn't know if tricky was going to fight with somebody you didn't know how much <laughs> weed was going to be smoked you did there was a danger to even doing the shows <laughs> that that i think was well worth the yeah. the time and energy because you sometimes you want a whole venue to feel that danger at the same time that really anything could happen yeah. and that's what that's you know we're so safe nowadays that we don't get that full width of experience the breadth of experience we just know it's going to be a certain thing and they're going to package it and give it to us just in a certain way. And it's very, very rarely do you get to be in a venue that has this certain feeling about it. Yeah. Do you, do you think that bands are too scared to take a risk with live shows now? Cause there's so much on it with a live performance. It's like, it has to be perfect, you know, cause they don't make money really from streaming and they don't make money from so much merch merch it's not even a thing anymore is it you know um, so you said you said fans do i think the fans do or the artists oh no the artists do you, do you feel the like that is there has to be this perfect live show or well first i mean first of all going back to to if you if you misspoke and said fans fans take a risk that go into a show now too 
look what oh, happened sure. to to what happened in in I forgot where it took place where the the shooting Manchester. in in Manchester. My yeah. my dear friend Nick, uh, a a merch seller on Scissor Sisters tour, um, uh, Nick died in that uh, at that show oh. was killed. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, in Las Vegas, we had a terrible shooting here in the states in Las Vegas uh, from behind from a hotel like these crazy you can't even dream up it's it's stranger than fiction and like as a fan you feel you want to feel in a room as i just spoke of which i just spoke of danger or of love or of pushing the boundaries yeah. things like that you want that but then it can go overboard and it can go into a whole different thing so as a fan i understand why fans would be reticent to have that experience so then you go to artists yeah, yeah artists are totally safe now there are very few artists taking chance, chances. Um, mm. Everything is, they're looking at merch sales every night. They're looking at the what the accountant is sending them. <clears throat> they're trying to beat the other artists. They're, they're trying to amass wealth and and still act like they're they need you know that they and they're not mm. getting. And you know the artists are artists on a big level. <clears throat> the few that we notice on a big level, they they have no unmet need. Unmet need does not exist for these artists. None of them. <laughs> so. It's when you truly have need that isn't met that you get most artistic. That's not always the truth, but I'm. That's pretty. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's a, one of the biggest <laughs> contributing factors to it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess you can see artists change over a certain time, can't you? Their their message or their lyrical content or their musical style. It's sort of. Mm -hmm. I I mean that's one of the, one of the reasons why Tricky is so great because he's never really relinquished that sense of realness to a sense mm -hmm. of fame you know it's like he's out he's he's um labels called false idols kind of explains everything you know it's yeah. like epitomizes yeah. really what he's about but um yeah yeah wow, by the by, by the end of my career i would love there are certain artists um i haven't thought of any actually at this moment but the, you know there are certain artists i wish i had mixed i'm sure i could think of a few and certain artists i wish i could go back and mix again and um, right. definitely, definitely, Scissor Sisters is probably at the top of that list. Um, their time is now. They are more, as evidenced by my by my daughter's, uh, you know, LGBTQ oh. flag, and you know the, how 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 things are. It's important. People's sense of who they are and how they identify is very important right now. And Scissor Sisters would, they would do well not only I think as a success and financially, but I think they would do well as a reception because when we did the US they didn't need a security guard when we did the UK they yeah. needed like six um yeah people in the UK got it people in Europe got it yeah they understood yeah, they were cute. I mean um, we love them <laughs> yeah and I always wish that that baby daddy and Jake would you know I, I someday I'm just going to write an impassioned plea and text to them and just say listen <laughs> let's just do this again let's just get it out there again yeah. let's just do a few shows let's go to Shepherd's Why Bush and not? do 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 seven nights in a row at Shepherd's Bush. They would crush. Okay, not only again, again, not not just financially. They would they would do well. They would do well um, as an artistic statement. You know, Jake and Baby Daddy have yeah. a lot to say, and um, so and some artists we need more than other times. You know, some some artists we need more than ever now, and they would be on the top yeah. of my list. There'd be other artists I'd like to go back and mix Duran Duran again. You know, but I don't know how much I wasn't able to do for them that I did for them. I helped their show get better. 
for sure. But and yeah. help in in consequence help the fans have a better experience. But um, and I would like to go back and mix certain artists just because I would like to see how they've grown and see how they've changed as as their artistic voice. How has it changed? What are they saying? Is it different? Is it better? Is it new? Is it old? And so that's part of the beauty is having a having a career now that spans a long time. The peaks and valleys sort of even out as you stand back and look at the entirety of it. It's more of just a line that sort of goes. And and it's interesting to me to see how things have changed. But yes, <clears throat> your original point about artists not taking chances and using backup tracks and using and click tracks in their ears and protecting their hearing and not really going for it the way Gaga would go for it. Um, you know, she was the last really yeah. fearless artist. Uh, if, if you don't conference, Gaga was the last one to take a lot of really fearless chances. I appreciate that about her. And, um, yeah. uh, but, but it's, it's interesting to see who still does push it and who rests on what they have. Mm. Mm. And just to kind of bring it, sort of bring it to a close, obviously the last thing you did with Prince was the piano, the microphone tour, which was a, a completely different experience, you know, stripped back. And he was in the very, different part of his life um and perhaps your relationship with him was was changing but like what's on a sort of positive note what, what are some of the fondest memories that you have with prince that you'll take with you hmm. um he prince taught me directly and by example how to challenge convention and challenge the norm uh, and become artistic. He, I have the great privilege of him calling me and treating me like an artist and a band member that he didn't hand that out to just anyone. Um, yeah. Matter of fact, as far as I'm concerned, he only handed it out to as technicians to Roy Bennett and myself, his lighting director and myself, where he, Oh, yeah. Treat, treated us as artists. He understood that we were artistic and helping part of the artistic process. And yeah. that's a, I take that with great seriousness. And I appreciate that he taught me through example how to treat people, how to be gentle when you needed to be gentle, how to be firm when you needed to be firm, and how to mm. express oneself and shoot for something over what you think you're capable because I think that's, it again, that over-promise, over-deliver. And Prince, um, he I, I don't even know, candidly, if I ever saw him to, at his best. He always seemed to have another gear that he could shift into, a higher gear, right. and take it wherever he wanted to go. Um, I don't know if I ever saw the mm -hmm. zenith. I don't know if this world ever saw his best, because he just had so much aptitude and so much and so much depth that I think it was a little bit too much for this life. Um, so I, I appreciate having a ringside seat for that and actually being in the ring for a lot of it. Um, both when I wasn't touring with him in support, um, not working with him now, but still being a fan of his music and helping the revolution and helping people understand, even through your listenership, your viewer, viewership, yeah. understand his process and what he was doing but not only prince but all the artists that we spoke about of of, of whom we spoke yeah. tonight and <clears throat> their what they were what they were trying to do artistically and just being a part of that is enough for me 
it's always been enough. But Prince yeah. certainly certainly pushed the limits of what I what I was capable. Yeah, and I'm sure you know that there were moments when uh, it wasn't so uh, nice and easy to talk about, and there were other sides of his character that you didn't really want to you know be on the end of, and you know maybe that's what made him him. But um, I just uh, I find it really inspiring to listen to you talk, you know, and you're a great advocate for if anything just following your dreams really and uh mm -hmm. staying aware of your own progress and then employing that in what you do next and, uh, and well i was just well, some, some i have to say one thing that you remind me of mm -hmm. one thing to your point is we never really know a relationship unless we've had the bad and the good for example you and i yeah. have met have met over email this is the first yeah. time we're seeing one another and talking and we're getting along fabulously um, that would probably continue in person or if we work together. But where we would really have the definition of our relationship change is when we argue. When we, yeah. when you say, no, I don't agree with that. Not only that, I don't want you to do that. And I don't want you to ever do that again. And that's when we start to see the limits and have disagreements with people. That's when a lot of the growth takes place as well. So yeah. that way we would know each other's limit. If you just always get along with someone and you never fight with them, it might mean that you're not pushing the edge of the relationship at all. So with Prince, even I would, I do want to reference disagreeing with him, not feeling supported by him in Australia. Um, I think I described him as yeah. upside down. <clears throat> he was definitely different in Australia than he was when we had the gala, the, the first piano and a microphone show, uh, Jan, January 21st, 2016. He was definitely the, almost the opposite of that. And, but to, to, in fairness to him, he had, he had lost a, a, a lifelong love in, in, in uh, uh, vanity. So when Denise, when she died, yeah. I don't know when he was processing. Nobody owns the grieving process. Some people are still grieving over Prince, right? I'm not. But I wouldn't mm -hmm. take it away from anyone mm -hmm. to do so, even if they hadn't met him. So we all have our own yeah. timeline of that. And that could have been why he was sort of upside down as well. Or it could have been the, the pills. It could have been anything. Um, but I think arguing and disagreeing and saying, I'm principled enough where I think I'm not going to see anything better than what you're giving me and what I'm giving you right now. I think it's important that I leave. That isn't a function of ego. That's a function of wanting him to get what he wants and maybe something more that he can't get with me. So some people think it was, I mean, mm -hmm. I've stopped listening to trolls and going down the troll hole as i call it right i've stopped oh, that no. because i don't think it services anyone but people say people say well why didn't you see it or why didn't you say something and why did you try and help and the the fact is that none of us really knew how he was that closely or for that either that or for that long no. it's just that we knew there was a typified behavior that wasn't normal it wasn't i, I mean being 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 fighting and being um uh ha having disagreements was normal like the, a lot of that a lot of that australia tour was normal to me i'd seen that over the years but yeah. what happened after i left when i decided to leave it was because i thought he deserved a better show and i told him and his manager in an email i don't think he wants me here i think it's better for the sake of the show that i leave it wasn't because right. i felt it was better for me necessarily because it was a lot of trouble and pain to leave and then 
go home and then catch on to something that I was already doing and go back to what I was doing in Los Angeles. So it wasn't easy, yeah. but I felt it was better for him. And like, he wanted that. So, you know, it's the, the, the bigger point I'm making, the overarching point is the disagreement's normal. And so is happiness. And it was a single percentage uh, digit, single digit percentage that Prince and I had acrimony and hard times. It was certainly under 10%. So we had a lot of good and we did a lot of yeah. good with one another. And I think sometimes relationships are just that way. It's that way with a spouse. It's that way with a, an adversary, you know, but sometimes spouses oh, yeah. and adversaries make you better than what you thought you could be. And that's what Prince did as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's always scary to be pushed into the unknown or pushed into territory that you, you might not have explored in your own psyche and, and mm -hmm. kind of have to welcome that and like welcome the, the comfort and welcome the discomfort as much as possible. You know, mm -hmm. but um, sometimes I feel like sometimes it takes extreme examples of that for you to uh, trust it. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's just your friend, then uh, I don't know, whatever. But if it's like someone incredible, then you sort of give over the control or something. Mm. I don't know. I kind of know if that makes sense or not. But um, no, that does make no, sense, I, and that that's a function of experience. When we are experienced yeah, enough, where we have totally. where we've gone to those dark, we've gone to those places before. And we are we make friends yeah. with darkness. Sometimes it's okay to make friends with darkness. And as I've said before, yeah. sometimes people have to realize that even people, even artists abusing um, ha having chemical dependency issues, those mm -hmm. chemical chemical dependency issues have fueled some of the greatest art of our time. So yeah. don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> sometimes that sometimes that creative space is there because of dependency issues with chemicals. So I don't think that they don't have their place either. I don't say no one should do it. That's part yeah. of what gets people. And you know it. I mean, if you're in the middle of your second martini, like you're like, I understand everything. Or if you've done a few <laughs> things, you go, I get it now. Well, right? So yeah, sometimes I mean, that's the fuel you need. Yeah, Sergeant Pepper was not made on cups of peppermint tea, was it? Do you know what I mean? Right. So yeah, I think everything in its right place in a way, but sometimes the right... Sometimes it's not the right time to see, but it's always in the right place somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. But um, if you could, if you could give any advice to sort of young, younger aspiring uh, sound engineers, what what do you think you would tell them? Um, I would probably say to them that you have to let your passion lead you, for sure. That that that's kind of a simple one. Um, I want to give advice that's different than than yeah. other people are going to say but clearly if you're if you're passionate about anything if you let that passion drive you you're already going to be in the right place i would also say do what you do what you like for a living but do what save what you love for yourself because yeah. sometimes if you lose what you love if you do what you love for a living and you lose that you can that bottom drops out and you really lose the sense of self and there's no gravity in your life anymore. Um, I've always made a very clear distinction between engineering yeah. and who I am as a person. The engineering is for sure just what I do. It's not who I am. And I, right. the, past, the past year and a half, I haven't really honestly missed it. I haven't gone, oh, I'm not, you know, and I haven't like longed for it. When I do it again, and the, the several times that I have worked in the last uh, year and a half, I've been just as good as I ever been. 
that's because it's just yeah. muscle memory and I know how to get back to where I was. My ears are as fresh, every, I'm hearing everything well um, and I'm good at it, but it doesn't mean I go to bed at night dreaming of like hugging a sound console. That's not what I, <laughs> that, that's not part of it. But I do understand yeah. the, the difference between me and a musician. A musician might fall asleep with a bass. I'm sure you have in your in your in your past. So yeah, that's different. Yeah, you have a relationship yeah. with your instrument that I don't have. I have that in in other parts of my life. Yeah, I don't true. have it with with engineering. So, um, but but advice to right. engineers would be just stay passionate, be excellent, um, understand music, and learn. Don't just learn the musical side of things or the technical. But as Dave Hampton instilled in me, that a kind of a mentor of mine and now a colleague that musical and technical come just from experience, but the relational, that other third part of that harmony, that triangle, the triad, the triumvirate of, of harmony would be musical, technical, relational. Make sure you work on relations. Make sure you work on how to read people. Make yeah. sure you're working extra hard, not just on music and technical, but how to read people's emotions and how they emote and body language and take all that into consideration and learn what the audience likes. That's another thing. There's all the audience is a yeah. big part of this as well. Otherwise, there's no need for us. Yeah. Don't say that. Well, I, I just want to thank you for giving me so much of your time and, and attention. And just uh, it's just been fantastic to chat to you. Seriously. It's been, it's been I, lovely. I do hope to be. Oh, bless you. I hope to be in Minneapolis next year. So I might pop around for a tea or something. <laughs> I, I, I'd be upset if you didn't. And eventually when oh, I make it over, you. then then we'll yeah. we'll have to get together and, and be, have a concert of our own. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um I, I wish you all the love and luck in the world with, with everything you're doing. And um yeah, just thank you very much. I love your ebullient spirit and your you have a lot of love thank and you. I that's that's you can tell oh. you're very passionate and loving and I appreciate the that flower of your spirit very much. Oh, I look forward to meeting so you in lovely. person. Yeah, you too. Thank you.